we're going to look at this uh, this passage. It's an interesting passage, uh, as is the whole chapter. I hope you'll find it uh, stimulating, encouraging, and challenging as we look at the passage. It was a few uh, few weeks ago. We were in a kids' club meeting, and I and someone. Someone asked a simple question. The simple question was this. If you were going into a place where you knew it was dangerous and you knew that you, were, you really were facing trouble, would you go there? <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? If you knew that the place you were going to was going to land you in lots of trouble, you're going to face all sorts of difficulties, would you go there? If it was dangerous, would you go there? If you were threatening your life, would you go there? Well, I'm not sure most of us would. I think we'd probably say, well, let's find another place to go and let's do it in another way. But here we've got the Lord Jesus, who is God, who knows exactly what he's going to face when he arrives at Calvary. He knows exactly what he's going to face before he arrives at Calvary. He knows exactly what he's going to face as various people um, want to kill him uh, and do great damage to him, to insult him. Would he go? Would you go? The Lord Jesus chooses to go. And uh, it's very interesting because as a human, he would know the suffering he was going to face. As God, he knew everything, but as a human, it must have been a terrible temptation, extreme pressure. And we remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus says, doesn't he, if there's any other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And in Matthew, we've got a verse that reflects all this. It says this, from time that, that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He's now setting his face to go to Jerusalem. And this transition is so important, especially that uh, part of that, the verse that we read in verse 45, 51, sorry, that says, he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. And I remember someone saying to me, oh well the authorised says he set, his, he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. But you look in the authorised and you won't find that. It doesn't say in the New Testament anywhere he set his face like a flint. But it does say he set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. But 800 years before Isaiah had said this is what the Lord Jesus would do, the suffering servant. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, just have a look at uh, chapter 50 and verses 6 to 8. And you'll see there this virtually the same passage. Perhaps, perhaps Luke had this in mind when he was writing those very those words. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. <clears throat> I gave my back to those who stri strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Notice this is the beginning of what he is going to face, disgrace and spitting. 
but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. So there you've got the suffering servant setting his face like flint. Flint is an extremely hard rock. And, uh, and so it, setting your face is like flint is setting it sort of permanently. It's a bit like some glue I bought recently. It said if you put a bit of glue on both bits, both ends, wait for a minute, stick them together, but keep your fingers away. <laughs> so I did. And being a chemist, I was pleased to see the instructions were true. And I could not get those two things apart. It was set. And this is a passage which is telling us the Lord Jesus set his face. Why does he set his face? Well, he's resolved to obey God despite blows, despite spitting, despite disgrace, and looking confidently for God's vindication. His cause is just, it's right, and he declares it and brings justice from God. He sets his face like a flint to Jerusalem. It's no easy road, is it? This is what uh, Spurgeon says. Mockery was a large factor in our Lord's suffering. Do you enjoy getting mocked? Made a fool of? Deliberately? This is what happens to him. Judas mocked him in the garden. The chief priests and scribes laughed him to scorn. Herod set him at nothing. The servants and the soldiers jeered at him and brutally insulted him. Pilate and his guards ridiculed his royalty. And on the tree, all sorts of horrible jibes and hideous taunts were hurled at him. Ridicule is always hard to hear and even harder to bear. But when we're in intense pain, it's so heartless, so cruel, that it cuts us to the quick. Consider the Saviour crucified, racked with anguish, far beyond anything we can imagine. And then picture that motley multitude, all wagging their heads and making mouths in bitter contempt of the poor, suffering victim. Surely there must have been something more in the crucified one than they could see, or else such a great and mingled crowd would not have unanimously honoured him with such contempt. Was it not evil, confessing in the very moment of its greatest apparent triumph that after all it could do was no more than mock at the victorious goodness that was then reigning on the cross? There were great words, weren't they, in the coronation. The Lord Jesus' throne was the cross and his crown was a crown of thorns. All that part of this setting his face against all these, this mockery and all the suffering he was going to face. And what's more, on the way, it was going to get difficult. Luke chapter 13 says this, At that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And en route as well, Matthew chapter 14, And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. They wanted to destroy him. So imagine all the mockery he's going to get, knowing people want to destroy him, and yet with this loving, gracious heart, he reaches out, blesses, and encourages even as he walks. 
on the Calvary Road to Jerusalem. And interestingly, in Isaiah, we find this suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, expressing great confidence in his Father. Absolutely sure that he will be vindicated. Absolutely sure that despite all the suffering, despite all the opposition, despite all the humiliation, ultimately he will be vindicated. And so he sets his face to Jerusalem to go through all this suffering, to go through all this agony, to take our sins upon his own body on the tree. So here's the first, second question. What would, what would make him do this? What would make the Lord Jesus do it? Why would he go to the cross? Why would he take on board all this, humili this humiliation, all this suffering, all this threat, all this pressure? Why would he do it? Well, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 is very helpful in this. We're told that we should look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, right hand of the throne of God. He despises the shame. He deals with the shame. He despises the shame. He sets his face like to Jerusalem. But what is it? Is it a suffering servant who is, who's petrified, who's defeated? who simply thinks about suffering in terribly negative ways, hopelessness. No, far from it. It's this joy that was set before him. So the Lord Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem against all the things that any of us would naturally run away from as fast as we possibly could. But he sets his face. And amazingly, there's joy as he, he goes down that road. Isn't that just wonderful? To think that here is the Lord Jesus and he's doing it for joy, you remember those lovely, that lovely passage that says there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Imagine. So if you're a Christian this evening, <laughs> even me, when we became Christians, there was joy in heaven, rejoicing. And the Lord Jesus is going that way in order that we might come to know him, that we might come to love him. So who's he thinking of as he goes on this this trip as he changes directions he sets his face to Jerusalem well obviously he's thinking of his father he has a job to complete and he will complete that job that's why he's setting his face that's why he's going to go to Jerusalem there's no messing about this this is fixed this is determined there's an appointment that he has to complete and a job that has to be completed at that very moment and remarkably he obviously considered his father and the role that his father has given him to do. And he's gladly accepted. But who else is he thinking of? Well, he's thinking of you and me. As he goes to Jerusalem, as he suffers all these things, he's thinking of you and me. And it's a joy that's set before him. Ask this question, did he think about himself? Did he think about his welfare? Who was most in his head? Did he think about his well-being? Did he think about his humiliation, his pain? even though he knew all that was ahead of him. No, there's joy and there's rejoicing, even in his heart as he knows all these things, because the outcome of all this is going to be you and me and millions of others in heaven together, saved by his precious blood. See, 
as a truly amazing God, the Lord Jesus truly amazing, selfless in the extreme, determined to bring blessing to us and glory to his Father as he goes to Jerusalem and sets his face to Jerusalem. So isn't that a wonderful picture? The selfless Lord Jesus Christ, focused wonderfully, just too wonderfully on you and me and the glory of his Father. Doesn't it almost take your breath away? <laughs> yeah. But then there's a, another question. What about the disciples? <laughs> they saw this. They knew what was happening. They'd been told he was going to Jerusalem. They knew he was going to suffer. Whether they'd really clocked it or not is another story. But he told them. How did they behave? How were they at this critical time when the Lord Jesus is setting... Well, let's just have a look at these few passages and... Uh, there's a lovely sort of summaries in this modern Bible study Bible, which I picked up a few uh, ideas from. Luke chapter 9 and verses 12 and 13. So here's the interesting thing. We're about to find this. The disciples were the complete opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was absolutely selfless. That's not the way the disciples were. The first reading is about the feeding of the 5,000, verses 12 and 13 of uh, chapter 9. And uh, you'll know the story obviously well, but it is interesting just to uh, look at it again, verses 12 and 13. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, for they may, may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We've no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. So the Lord Jesus says, Feed them. They say, We can't do it. We're in a desert. We're just a long way from the local Asda. And, you know, there's just no hope. It's interesting, isn't it? They have the Lord Jesus Christ with them, who'd raised the dead in just a few chapters before in Luke. And, uh, and they'd seen remarkable miracles, but they just didn't believe the Lord Jesus could provide. Even though he asked them, even though he told them, they didn't believe Jesus had enough power or authority to sort that situation out. How about Luke chapter 9 and verses 28 to 32? This is the story of uh, which you, again you'll know and you'll know well. Uh, verse 28 to 32. <clears throat> now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John and James and went up onto the mountain to pray. And as they prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah. Isn't that wonderful? The three disciples <laughs> taken with Jesus to meet Moses and Elijah. Can it just be wonderful? I mean, what, a, what an experience. Unfortunately, they were caught napping. <laughs> they slept. They were tired, okay, you can be sympathetic with that, but they missed the whole point of it all. 
they did eventually uh, see and understand a little of what had gone on. In fact, to such an extent, we'll come back to it in a minute, Peter wanted to stay there. But they caught napping. It was a moment to see the most incredible things that God had for them. And they were just too tired to take it in. Or, again, the next passage is Luke chapter 9 and verses 33 to 36. I won't let, read it through so much, just simply point out that Peter then says, well, let's stay forever. Let's build up these tabernacles. We'll, let's stay. we we'll stay on the mountaintop. Well, this is the place to be. This is so wonderful. It's sad, really, isn't it? Because uh, so often Peter wanted, didn't realize that he want, he, the blessing was really where Jesus wanted to go, the path of service, the path of Calvary. It wasn't to stay on the mountaintop. It was to go to Calvary, to serve others, to bring glory to the Father through the Lord Jesus himself and for his death. Peter didn't get it. He simply didn't get it. And so you got to move on just again. Uh, how did the disciples behave at this critical time of the Lord Jesus? Well, chapter 9 and verses 43 to 45. It's very interesting again to read these interesting words, these verses 43 to 45. And when they were all amazed at the majesty of God... And while everyone marveled at all these things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying. And it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Jesus spoke to them, told them in no uncertain terms what was going to happen. And they didn't understand. And what did they do? They fell into fear. They didn't want to ask him, what does it mean? Explain it to us. We haven't got a clue what you're saying. <coughs> Lord, speak to us, make it clear. They were afraid. Here was the Lord Jesus, the most loving and gracious, the most wonderful teacher that ever walked the earth. And they were afraid to ask him a question. And then go on further. Chapter 9 and verses 46 to 48. They start fighting position. Who's the most important then? Hey, hey, come on now. Is it me or is it him? Who's the most important? Isn't it sad? Jesus is setting his face to Jerusalem and all they can think of is who's the most important. It gets worse though, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, chapter 9 and verses 49 and 50. They're totally taken up with feuding now. They have a rival teacher. And Jesus, uh, and they claimed sort of a, they had exclusive links with God. And Jesus had to tell them that anyone was welcome who served God in his name. They had rivals. There was enmity. They're not on my side we want to get rid of them. Let's sort them out. And then chapter, chapter 9, verse 51 to 56, they wanted to kill the opposition. When the Samaritans didn't want them, their ethnic enemies, uh, because they were moving into this, wanted to go into this particular village, the Samaritans didn't want to, and uh, 
So what does uh, what happens? Well, the disciples get vicious. Let's call down fire from heaven. Let's kill them all off. They don't want you. Let's kill them all off. The Lord Jesus has no truck with any of that. And later on we find the disciples in the end of the chapter, the part that we read, right at the end of the chapter, there is overstated commitment by disciples. And Jesus has to say they have to deliver on their promises. They're a rum crew, aren't they, really? The disciples, don't you think? They didn't have confidence that God could provide for them in their trials and difficulties, or even though it was simply food that they needed. But we want to be very careful when we point the finger at the disciples, don't we? Because there's fingers pointing back at us. How often the Lord Jesus puts us in situations and we don't think he can help us through this one. This one's more than he can ever cope with. We can ever cope with. And he can't cope with it. It's too big for him to handle. We're often, sadly, you and me, just like the disciples. Or the, uh, the way in which... Uh, uh, they wanted, they were caught napping. You know, have we missed the blessing? You know, we'd sometimes lazy, not as committed as we'd want to be. In our better moments, we'd want to be, and yet sometimes we miss out on God's blessing. We nap, as it were, through the greatest times that God has for us. And then again, there's the the spiritual experience. So often we want to stay on the mountaintop, don't we? We always want to be blessed at the mountaintop. But if you ask the question, where is most blessing? Is it in the mountaintop or is it in the valley? Well, I think most of us would say where we really learnt most, where we really drew near to God, it would be in the valley. It would be following the Lord Jesus on that Calvary road. We can't point the finger really at these disciples sadly because in many ways there are times when we do just exactly the same thing. Who's the most important? And sometimes, you know, people sort of say, well, no one noticed me. No one's mentioned my name. No one's thanked me. It's interesting, isn't it? We, we can often be focused on ourselves and not on our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can be feuding. We can be tribal. This is not my tribe. Therefore, we can be critical of people, inappropriately sometimes. Or even sometimes, sadly, and I hope this isn't true of many of us, if any, but even the vicious side of things towards the people who don't agree with us or who might uh, be people who reject us, treat us badly. The disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven. And then there's the what the disciples did was they overstated their commitment and the Lord Jesus drew their attention to that Alistair Begg's got an interesting comment on this he, he basically says that sometimes we can say Lord we want to be holy we want to be good we want to do these things we want, we really want to serve you and we want to commit ourselves to you and so we say that we may even pray that but Alistair Begg's comment is Saying it and praying it's one thing. Living it is another thing. And sometimes we're content with the saying, content with the praying, and not, we never get to the living of it. It was an interesting observation. I thought, well, that's true of me. A number of times I've said certain things to God and I've not delivered on my part of the responsibility. 
So, let's be quite frank about it. They're a rubbish crew. I mean, Peter, we read, took him aside when Jesus told him about the, what was going to happen in the cross and uh, in Matthew. And T Peter took him aside and uh, said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So he didn't get at all what was going to happen to the Lord Jesus. So if we struggle with different things, we're in good company. But, and this is the important bit, if you forget everything else, remember this little bit here. Because there's a statement I picked up, I'm not sure where I picked it up either. But it's a great statement, and it's a really helpful one. Did Jesus give up on his disciples? <laughs> he didn't, did he? All the mess that they were, called down fire, you know, vicious. I'm the boss, I'm more important than he is. Come on now, recognize me. Like, you can't help me, Lord. It's just this problem of 5,000 people to feed. You can't do that. All those other things taken on board, but he didn't give up with them. This is what someone said. And yet Jesus didn't give up on the 12. Even though they lacked, here they are, love for, what, for each other and for others and for the Lord and put themselves first, weak, self-centered, unrealistic about themselves and insensitive to others, Jesus kept on training them to become servant leaders. And did he succeed? Did he succeed? Well, yes, he did. Because like Luke writes the book of Acts. And it's all about what wonderful things these men, God used to do great things. Despite their failures, his training made them servant leaders. His, his, his words were proved true through the weakness of these men in the book of Acts. So what was the Lord Jesus like? He set his face to Jerusalem. Absolutely selfless. Absolutely committed. There was no way he was going to do anything other than go through with the role that God had given him. And that awful cross and carrying that awful pain of your sin and mine. He was going to go through with it. He wasn't going to fail. He was going to succeed. Isn't that wonderful? How were the disciples? It's all about me. It's not about him. And yet what Jesus is seeking to do with you and with me is to move us from setting our face to there's, there's the Calvary road and the disciples are going this way. <laughs> I'm going that way. Uh, I don't want to do what you want to do. I'm going to go it my way. But Jesus wants them to go that way. And in the end, they do. And for you and for me, we need to set our face like a flint to follow him. And we won't be alone on that route. He'd be with us every single step of the way. So what about you and me? Well, it's not about our preferences. It's about what he wants for us, following him on the Calvary Road. There's a little saying which is, I've remembered for years, I don't know whether you probably know it as well. Very simple one, joy. Jesus first, Others second, yourself last. <laughs> joy. It's very simple discipleship, isn't it? Joy, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan said this, We cry too often to be delivered from punishment instead of the sin that lies behind it. We're anxious to escape the pain 
rather than from the things which give God pain. And so what about you? Hebrews chapter 3, 12 and verse 3 says this, Consider him, consider him, think on him, reflect on him, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. So you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. Follow him. See the road he takes. See his route. See his direction. See his commitment. See his love for you and for me. And follow him. It's very interesting, isn't it, you see, because that passage effectively says not only is he our example to follow, but he enables us. He gives us his strength to do it. We can't do it ourselves. We wake up in the morning, we have things to face, and it just seems so often, Lord, we can't do it, but we're on this road. We're going to follow you, Lord, whatever the cost. And he gives us grace, and we get through things. I keep a, um, a journal, and uh, there are lots of times in that one, at the beginning of the day, I write down, no hope. It says, Lord, this is just too hard. We, are we ever going to get through today? It looks too difficult. And then the end of the day, ooh, <laughs> he did it. He got us through again. Isn't that just wonderful? For the joy that's set before him, we follow him. And we're to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We yield ourselves to him. And we need to set our faces like flint. This is the direction we're going. We're not going to falter. We're going to go, whatever the cost. This is where we're going. We're going to follow him. And every step of the way, he's going to be with us. Every moment, he's going to carry us and strengthen us. And Paul was like that, wasn't he? Remember what he said? Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's not for me. I'm not serving me. It's not my interest. It's not my goals. It's not my reputation. It's not my family. It's not about me. It's all about him and following him on that Calvary Road. And the Calvary Road, of course, led to resurrection and glory and joy that was set before him completed. Last week we passed a little chapel in Blaenanach on the road from Newquay or Aberystwyth right down to Cardigan. And on the right-hand side, as you go down, there's a church in Blaenanach still there. It looks quite quite neat place, really. Never been in there. But in 1904, at 7 o'clock in the morning, there was a meeting devoted to asking questions. The speaker was the Reverend Seth Joshua, and he, uh, he spoke, and many of us know this story, but for those of us who don't know it, just to remind you, he spoke, and uh, at that meeting was Evan Roberts, a young man who God was working in. And uh, as a result of that meeting... Evan Roberts said this, it was the spirit that put the emphasis for me on bend us, because that was one of the issues that uh, Seth Josh raised, bend us. That's what you need, said the Holy Spirit. As I went out, I prayed, O Lord, bend me. 
Not to follow my way, but to follow your way. Not my pride, not my success, not anything to do with me, all to do with you. And of course the revival followed and uh, 100,000 people converted. Well, there are people here who know a lot more about that than I, so I shan't dig into that any further. But simply wonderful that God bent Evan Roberts. So for you and for me, are we often, we sometimes are too proud, too fearful, too interested in ourselves. Not often willing to admit our complete weakness. But if we ask the Lord to help us and forgive us and take us on that road, he certainly will. The Calvary road is there to be followed. We're nearly finished. Just one illustration that might help you. If it doesn't, I'm sure you can junk it. I'm sure that's quite possible for you. But I'm going to give you a choice, right? This is your choice. And, uh, and three youngsters, this is your choice. You can have a choice. Okay. I can give you a million pounds in your hands now. How about that? One million pounds. There it is. Million pounds. Well, imagine it anyway. Or I can give you a penny. Which would you choose? Oh, let me tell you more. The penny is not an ordinary penny. It's a magic penny. And the magic penny is like this. On the first day I give it to you, it's just a penny. No more. Simple, ordinary penny. So remember, there's a million pounds, or you can have the magic penny. The only thing is, on day two, the second day you've got it, you've got tuppence. So this magic penny is doubled. Isn't that wonderful? And on day three, how much will be there then? If it doubles every day? Penny on the first day, tuppence on the second day, come on, but the maths. If it doubles every day, have a guess. Don't worry, it's okay. They, nobody else knows the answer, so it's all right. Fourpence, you're right. And the next day, it goes from penny to tuppence to fourpence. What's the next day? Eightpence, you're right. And if you keep doing it, I, oh, there's one snack. Oh, sorry to tell you. This million pounds you can have forever, but the magic penny, you've only got it for 31 days for a month. That's all you've got. It's rough, isn't it? But I'll take it back from you, that magic penny, after 31 days. Which one would you go for? The magic penny? Or the million pounds? What do you think? Magic, magic penny. A wise man. Let me tell you the truth. Someone did the maths for me, and I'm sure others will do it for you tonight. Tell me the accuracy of it. But you know, the truth is, after 20 days, your magic penny still, you'd probably be better off with a million pounds. And this person who's taken the million pounds will be looking at you and saying, Dumbo. You could have had a magic penny, but you've chosen a magic penny. I've got a million pounds. But after 25 days, after 27 days, after 30 days, after 31 days, you'll have something like 10 million pounds. Which is best, to take the magic penny or a million pounds? Well, magic penny, isn't it? And of course you renew that really from the beginning and you, a very wise youngster there said magic penny. But here's the point, see, sometimes we say I want to be holy and we look at this huge thing of being holy 
And yet, what God says is, take this little step, just this very small step, like the magic penny, and keep on taking small steps. Say, I'm not going to do this today. I'm going to trust you today. I want a prayer life. I want a really great time with God. And we somehow look at that and we try to reach out for it. But actually, God says, well, actually, let's just have a couple of minutes today. Give me two minutes of your undivided attention today. And maybe three minutes tomorrow. But don't keep talking about this huge thing. Take small steps to get there. Or this relationship is broken down. And I want to reach them and I want to share the gospel with them. What on earth do I do? Here's a few things. Magic penny. Smile. Smile at them. <laughs> Send them a text. Send them an email. Have a phone call. Send them a card. I want to witness to these people. Well, it's not this huge witness thing. It's all the small steps that lead to that glorious opportunity to share the gospel. We so often want this big thing, but God actually says, take the small steps. Take this Calvary road. Another step along the Calvary road. But I don't like this person, but you know I need to witness to them. Okay, pray about it today. Pray for an opportunity just to say, hello. And then the next day, hello, how are you? Or <laughs> whatever it is. Small steps. Now, for some of you, you'd probably say, well, that's the most obvious thing in the world. I, my wife would say that. It's all about small steps, and she says that. But see, my mind isn't set like that. I sort of tend to think about these big... So it's a big thing for me to start talking about small steps. But that's how I think now in so many ways. Sometimes God gives you huge leaps. That's wonderful. But most of the time, we need to say, Lord, help me to think of the magic penny to follow you. There's no easy way, but it is the Calvary Road, and it's a step-by-step -step route, following and trusting and loving. It's interesting that um, Maureen Wise wrote about the church in Moldova, and of course the church in Moldova is probably the poorest church in the whole of uh, Europe, and the poorest people in the whole of Europe. This is what she says about Moldovian Christians. And I think it's an illustration of the small steps that we can take. The love of Moldovian Christians, such love, it was a love that accepted people for who they were, without being critical. It saw the best in them. This love persevered in times of difficulty and didn't give up on others. It put others first at all times. It was a love that took delight in serving. There was nothing artificial about it. I've lived with the Moldovians for long enough to see the, its authenticity. This was a love that came from heaven and breathed the Saviour's love for us. I saw graciousness in their attitude to people who treated them badly or rudely. It was the fragrance of Christ in a culture that was frequently hostile and tough. They were people of great faith, vigorously exercised on a daily basis they did exploits they trusted whatever great with great thankfulness as they prayed they were expressions of thankful hearts wonderful behavior Maureen Wise went there you probably know the story and in her book with God all things are possible she describes the wonderful things God did but so often they were small one after the other at great cost 
but with great blessing at the end. So my challenge to myself, as much as it is to you, is to say, Lord Jesus, will you take me on that Calvary road, whatever the cost, whatever the price, and will you grant, O Heavenly Father, that I might set my face to follow you, to be with you, to know you every single step of the way, however small the steps might be, because ultimately there will be far, far greater gains for his glory.